following talk is from St. Michael's Fowell, a gospel-centered community for Fowell, Teddington, and beyond. Our passion is to see every life following Jesus. For more information, visit our website, stmichaelsfowell.co.uk. We're going to turn to God's Word now. So um, hopefully a Bible is near you within reaching distance, so do grab hold of uh, one of these, and turn to page 1049. And over this summer holidays, over this summer period, we are looking at a series uh, called Stories Jesus Told, uh, looking at parables in Luke's Gospel. And uh, today is uh, one of the more well-known, the parable of the lost son. Uh, Sandy is going to be preaching uh, in a few moments, but first Margaret is going to come and read uh, Luke chapter 15. Luke 15, beginning at verse 11. Jesus continued, There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country, who sent him into his field to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Meanwhile, the elder son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. The elder brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, Look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, who has squandered your property with prostitutes, comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. My son, the father said, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this your brother was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. Morning. Thanks very much, Margaret. Uh, Ed's got a handout that he's going to pass around. And do keep your Bibles open 
at that wonderful story. And I'll pray. Blessed is the one whose delight is in the law, the guidance, the wisdom of the Lord. So Lord, this morning we pray that we might realize that true joy, true delight is to be found in your word, in your truth. Help us to feed on it together as we sit here and listen and open our hearts to you. So speak to us by your gracious mercy, we pray. Amen. Well, why does Jesus tell stories? Of course, there are lots of reasons, but one of the key reasons is that stories steal past our watchful dragons, as C.S. Lewis put it. In other words, they evade the defenses we carefully put up to keep the truth about ourselves at bay. In the Old Testament, when David has uh, Uriah, the the husband of Bathsheba, killed and takes Bathsheba just because he can, God sends a prophet, Nathan, to David. And the prophet, Nathan, doesn't tell him off. He tells him a story. A story about a man who had so many lambs and yet who steals the one lamb of a poor man just because he could. David is angry. That man must die, he says. You are that man, says Nathan. Me? Yes, you. Stories have power, don't they? And if this story is to do its work for us, then we need to move from being observers on the outside to being participants on the inside. It's much easier to be a critical observer, isn't it, to stand back. But actually, the power comes when we start to say, I am that younger son. I am that older son. Both in some ways are my story. We know the story as the prodigal son, but Jesus starts by saying there was a man who had two sons. So both sons are important. So let's listen to the story. The younger son says, Father, give me my share of the estate. It's just a demand, isn't it? No pleas, no explanation. Just give me my share of what I would normally get only when you die, but I want it now. Kenneth Bailey, a writer on parables, said, for 15 years I have been asking people from Morocco to India and from Syria to Turkey about the son's request for an inheritance while his father is still alive. And always the the conversation goes like this. Has anyone ever made such a request in your village? Never. Could anyone ever make such a request? Impossible. What would happen if they did? His father would beat him, of course. Why? Because it means he wants his father dead. He wants the father's good things, but he doesn't want the father. But here, amazingly, the father just gives him what he asks for. He sells the land that no doubt has been in the family for generations, and as soon as he can gather it together, after just a few days, the son is off to a distant country. He goes as far away as he can get. What is the hardest thing a child can do to their parent? I suggest not argue with them or disobey them, but just 
ignore them, to say, oh, I'm not interested, leave me alone. How could the son heartlessly reject his father like that? And yet, I am that younger son. I want to live my life without God. I didn't become a Christian for several years when I knew it was true because I did not want God in charge of my life. I wanted the good things he gave me, but I didn't want him. And I didn't even think about the pain it caused him. We think of sin, don't we, as breaking the rules, like parking on a double yellow line, but really it's more like parking on the traffic warden's foot. It hurts him. It hurt the father when his son behaved like this, and it hurts God when we go off and forget about him. But he doesn't worry about that. He just goes off as far away as he can get, and for a while, everything is great. But eventually, we don't know how long it took. The money runs out, and the music stops. And there's a severe famine, and he is in need. Let's look at verse 15. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. He's less important than the pigs. The freedom that seemed so limitless and attractive when he headed off over the hill has turned out not to be liberating at all. And he ends up under orders, hiring himself out among the pigs, hungry, unfulfilled, and in need. That's a picture of sin, isn't it, which seems so sparkling and exciting at the beginning. And maybe for a while it is, but it doesn't last. In the end, it enslaves us. It sends us to a place we don't want to be. And we're unfulfilled and not in control anymore. And we can't get the muck off our hands. Like Adam and Eve in the garden, they think they can ignore God, they'll be better off without him, but soon they discover they're cut off and in a mess. We call it freedom, but Jesus says, really, it's about being lost. Freedom and lostness can end up looking very similar, can't they? Well, some of us may have gone farther off into the far country than others, but all of us are sons of Adam and daughters of Eve. We all want the good thing God gives us without him. And part of us wants to get away from him. We think we'll be fine on our own, but in the end we never are. W.H. Auden said this, the difference between youth And age is that youth is still able to believe it will get away with anything, while age knows only too well that it's got away with nothing. Age knows it doesn't get away with it in the end. And as well as a personal individual application, let's also think about a collective application of this. Our post-Christian culture today, we've gone far from God, let's forget about him, let's get away from him, let's get over the hill where we don't have to think about him anymore. We're free to discover ourselves and be whatever we want to be. But what we discover is not freedom, but a sense of being trapped by 
anxiety, isolation, the diminishing returns of addiction in a sex and money culture, where we crave more and more, but we enjoy less and less. And what we thought was freedom turns out to be self-slavery. Going away from God seems so exciting, and yet in the end it always ends up degrading and diminishing us. Will we, as a culture, at some point come back? Well, the good news in this story is that the prodigal son faces the truth, faces the truth about the state he's in. It's interesting that Jesus doesn't dwell on his motive for returning. I mean, there's no sign of a sudden sense of remorse or a burst of love for his dad. Instead, he just gets fed up with the squalor of the pigsty. And you could say he comes back from selfish motives. He came to himself, is what Jesus says literally. He hasn't yet come back to the Father. But he has turned in the right direction and started on his way home. And he thinks it will be a long, lonely journey. And then, while he's still a long way off, suddenly there is his dad. His father has spotted him. He's thrown his dignity to the wind. He's run out to him. And he is filled with compassion. That word we looked at in the Good Samaritan a couple of weeks ago, which means that your guts are deeply, passionately moved. His father literally, as Jesus describes it, falls on his neck. And uh, we've got a couple of pictures here. One, Charlie Mackesy's sculpture. The other one is Rembrandt's famous painting. He repeatedly kisses his dusty, smelly, swineherd son. Maybe this is Jesus' most beautiful picture of grace. If you want to understand grace, don't look it up in a dictionary, but think of this image of the father holding the son, moved in his guts with compassion, falling on his neck and kissing him repeatedly. To see how lovely this is, I want to contrast it with two other prodigal child stories, one real and one fictional. This is the real one. I'm not going to ask you who that is, I'll tell you. It's Jim Morrison, back in the 60s. He was a leader of the counterculture, lead singer of The Doors. And he'd run away from home and lost touch completely with his very conventional family. His father was the youngest admiral in the U.S. Navy. But one day, his brother was listening to the number one at the time, Light My Fire, and he suddenly realized that the lead singer was his brother, Jim. So his mother got the number from the record company and rang up her son. Please come home, she said. It's Thanksgiving, we can have a family dinner together. I'm not sure, said Jim. And while he was thinking, she said, will you please just do me one big favor? Will you get your hair cut? You know what your dad's like. Well, of course, he never came and he died of alcohol and drugs in a Paris hotel room bath at the age of 27. Come home, but you have to change first. Second contrast, Steven Spielberg's film version of The Color Purple. Sugar is a knock dead nightclub singer 
in a ramshackle bar down by the river. Her father is a hellfire preacher in a nearby church. They haven't spoken to each other for years. One Sunday as she is singing in the bar, I've got something to tell you, she hears what sounds like an echo of the song coming from the church choir, God's got something to tell you. So filled with longing for home and guilt, she heads back to the church and leads her band right up the aisle, just as her father is going into the pulpit to preach on the prodigal son. The sight of his long-lost daughter silences him. He stares at the procession. Even us singers have got souls, she says, and hugs her father. But he, ever the stern moralist, hardly reacts. He struggles to forgive the daughter who shamed him so. She, the prodigal daughter, is the one forgiving, not him. See how different those two stories are from this one? Here, verse 20 comes before verse 21. Just look at those two verses. Even before the son has opened his mouth, the father has welcomed and forgiven him. That's the scandal of grace, isn't it? He doesn't have to change anything. He's welcomed back as he is. All he has to do is choose to come back. The son starts out, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. He, he realizes now he has hurt his dad. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But before he can say anything about becoming a servant, his father is calling for the best robe. And that's the robe the father himself would have worn at very important occasions. So he's being gifted immediately the very status of his dad. Bring the ring and the sandals, nothing but the best for him. Everyone is equal within the family of God and has the highest status. What a lovely picture of grace that is. And an enormous party begins. The fattened calf is going to be killed, which means it's like a hog roast at church. Everyone is invited. The whole neighborhood will be there. The band will be playing. They'll be dancing. It's party time. So each of these three parables here, the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the lost sons, ends with a party. Rejoice with me, say the shepherd and the woman. We had to celebrate, says the father. It was necessary. This joy has to be shared. We can't keep it to ourselves. G.K. Chesterton said this joy is the gigantic secret of the Christian. If people come in here for the first time and don't sense joy, that's worrying, isn't it? I hope they do. I'm sure they do. And if you're a Christian and you're not experiencing joy in your walk with Jesus, then that's like a, a warning sign, isn't it? A smoke alarm telling you, look out, be careful. Joy is a theme, a leitmotif running through this whole chapter. And so keep an eye open for it. It is important. So, verse 24 says, they began to celebrate. The party starts. But we know this is a story about a man who had two sons. And we are not just like the younger son who wants to go far away 
to escape God, but also like the older son who stayed at home. In fact, probably he's more relevant to most of us than his wild living younger brother. And I think we're getting to the real point of the parable because parables are a bit like jokes. The punchline comes at the end. The older son refuses to come in to what may be the biggest party that his father has ever thrown. He should be there as the older son, welcoming everyone, checking they've got enough to eat and drink, but instead he's outside, sitting under the tree with his arms folded, casting a very public vote of no confidence in his dad. So Jesus is showing us there's two kinds of sin. One is obvious, heading off into the far country, but there's another way to reject the father, a quiet rebellion from within, a rebellion so subtle that no one notices perhaps. Maybe we don't even notice ourselves. And that's far more dangerous, isn't it? Well, again, the father doesn't wait inside. He goes out. And rather than frog-marching his grumpy son in, he pleads with him. He's met with rudeness. Verse 20, look, or you, look. You never even gave me a goat to celebrate my friends. All these years I've been slaving for you and obeying your orders. He sees himself as a servant, even a slave, just like his brother among the pigs. And the father doesn't defend himself. He doesn't try to justify his actions. He just absorbs the rudeness. And look at the older brother's words in verse 30. When this son of yours comes home. He doesn't say my brother, he says your son. So you see the irony? He's never left home and yet he's placing himself outside the family. The resentment that he's been nurturing erupts into the open. You never gave me a goat and he has squandered your property with prostitutes. He doesn't know that. He hasn't met his brother yet. He's just imagined it. Glenn Scrivener comments, the grumpy moralist may not have been bold enough to visit the far country in reality, but he has often been there in his fantasies. On the outside, he's dutiful, hardworking, loyal, never missed a shift, never gone on a bender. He's the good son, but inside he's full of contempt and anger and resentment and self-righteousness. I'm not like that good-for-nothing brother of mine. But actually, when you look at his heart, he's, he's probably worse than his brother, isn't he? And that's a shock. And it makes us ask a surprising question. Who finds it easier to get into heaven? Good people who've kept all the rules or bad people who've lived a wild, dissolute, out-of-control life? We think the answer to that is obvious, but this parable is making us rethink it. Have a look at the first two verses of the chapter, the reason Jesus tells these three stories of lostness. Verse 1, now the tax collectors and sinners, they're the bad people, were all gathering round to hear Jesus. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, the good people, they were muttering, this man 
welcomes sinners and eats with them. The bad people heard Jesus gladly. They knew they needed a new start and they knew they needed forgiveness. But the good people, the religious people, the respectable people were muttering, angry, resentful, just like the older brother. They too were outside with their arms folded, refusing to come into the party. The bad people were entering into joy. The good people were staying out. I wonder if you know the story of the gardener who grew an enormous carrot. And he took it to the king and he said, you are a good king and as a sign of my love and respect, this is the greatest carrot I've ever grown. I want to present it to you. And the king was deeply touched and he said, well, actually, I have a plot of land right next to your garden and you're such a good gardener, I want to give you that for free. The gardener went home delighted. A nobleman at court watched this and he thought, if that's what you get for a carrot, and the next day he came to court with a magnificent black stallion, he said to the king, this is the finest horse I have ever bred, and as a token of my love and respect for you, O king, I'm presenting it to you. The king said, thanks very much. And that was it. The next day, the king said to the grumpy-looking nobleman, let me explain. That gardener gave me the carrot, but you gave that horse to yourself. You see, all the good works of the older son weren't really for the father, they were for himself. You never even gave me a goat. He cares more about the property than he does about the person. He wanted the father's gifts without the father, just like his brother. And so the quiet rebellion of the dutiful and the diligent is in some ways much more dangerous, isn't it? Much more pernicious. Who killed Jesus? Was it the tax collectors and the sinners? No, of course, we know it was the respectable religious people. And so who finds it easier to get into heaven? Is it the good people or the bad people? Two different kinds of sin. And within each of us is both a younger brother and an older brother who thinks, I've earned it, I've done enough, I'm really a good person, I'm better than a lot of people. And if we're not careful, churches can be full of older brotherish attitudes, can't they? The little Pharisee in me who wants to tell people when I've done something good because then they'll know I'm a good person. Did you know I put away all the Bibles after church last week? I didn't really. <laughs> but, and also, I want to look down on other people and say, well, look at them, I'm better than them. If I do that, I don't have to face the unpleasant bits of myself that I'd much rather not grapple with. And that's why people often have bad experiences of church, isn't it? Because churches can be full of people who know all the words to Amazing Grace, but can't wait to tell somebody off. If you want a diagnostic sign, then maybe it's the absence of joy. Because older brothers and sisters, it's all about their hard work. And the older brother doesn't seem to have any joy on this wonderful day when his younger brother comes back from the dead. You never even gave me a goat so I could celebrate where? With my friends, my friends. Not in the family, but over there somewhere else. That's where I expect to find 
my real joy, away from home just like his brother. And that's why older brothers and sisters often have a secret fantasy life. As we said earlier, he'd been to the far country in his mind. If your faith doesn't bring you joy, then you will look for it somewhere else. And that's why respectable Orthodox church leaders can have a secret other life. We've read about recent examples, haven't we? Outward conformity and yet hidden inner rebellion. Another example, if it's the pattern, is Hugh Edwards. You know, family man, model of reliability and respectability and restraint, singing hymns in his Welsh Baptist church, but actually he's looking for his joy somewhere else, secretly. So I am the older brother as well as the younger brother, and the older brother part is spiritually more dangerous than the younger brother. In a church of this size, there will almost certainly be some people really struggling with that kind of hidden secret rebellion, a secret search for joy. And if that's you, then today is a good day to say, I need to stop keeping it to myself. I need to share it with somebody I trust. Well, how does the father respond to his bitter son? Verse 31, my son, it says, it's literally a very tender word, child. It's a word used for a small child rather than a grown-up. You're my beloved child. You're always with me. Everything I have is yours. What matters is not what you've done, but who you are. And we had to celebrate and be joyful because this brother of yours has come back. You and he are both part of the family. This is home where you belong. Come and join the joyful party. Well, does he come in? Well, look at the end of the story. Oh, it's not there. The other two stories, the lost sheep and the lost coin, end with a party and joy. But this one, we don't know whether he comes in or not. Jesus leaves us on a cliffhanger. Will he acknowledge his need for grace that he's no better than his brother? Or will he stay outside like the muttering Pharisees, the good people? And so the story is told to the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, and it's an invitation, isn't it? Come in. Jesus is saying, join my joyful party, the ultimate party, the ultimate source of joy in the universe. Well, finally, what about the cost of forgiveness? You say, well, what cost? There's no cost here. The Father just freely forgives. And God just forgives us. That's who God is. He's a forgiving, loving God. Why are evangelicals always banging on about the cross? There's no cross in this story, is there? Well, let's imagine the conversation down the dog and ferret a few days later. He gave away half his estate, the old fool. He'll never get that back, and, and he didn't have to. That good-for-nothing boy just asked for it, and he gave it away. And then when that useless waster came back in rags, his tail between his legs, instead of putting him to work, he ran out to him, he ran out to him, threw his arms around him. Has he no self-respect? And when the other son threw a tantrum, 
he went out again. He virtually got down on his knees and pleaded with him. No dignity. I'd never heard of someone humiliating themselves like that. What an old fool that man is. No cost to the father, really. This is uh, one of the best books that's been written for a long time on the cross. The Crucifixion by Fleming, Fleming Routledge came out in 2015. And she says the main purpose of crucifying people was not to inflict physical pain. Did you know that? Not to inflict physical pain. No, what she says is this. Crucifixion was specifically designed to be the ultimate insult to personal dignity. The last word in humiliating and dehumanizing treatment. These are her italics. Degradation was the whole point. Executed publicly at a major crossroads on a, or a well-trafficked artery, devoid of clothing, left to be eaten by birds and beasts, victims of crucifixion were subject to unmitigated vicious ridicule. That's why Roman citizens were never crucified. Crucifixion was really reserved for slaves, for the dregs of society. Degradation and humiliation was the whole point. You see, God humiliated himself publicly to bring us home, just as the Father does here in order to bring both his sons home. He suffered disgrace so we could receive amazing grace. And we need to receive that grace, both the younger son in me and the older son in me. I need to know that he calls me his beloved child and welcomes me in to eternal joy, the only joy worth having, the only joy that ultimately lasts, to feel his loving arms around me. And only that will give me the deep inner security that empowers me to give myself away, to love others, and to serve him with joy. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the power of stories. We thank you for Jesus teaching us in so many different, extraordinary, wonderful, surprising ways. And we pray that this story that we know so well on one hand, but on the other hand, we just don't begin to explore the depths of. We pray that it would speak to each of us this morning. Please convict us by your spirit of the areas in which we need to really hear you. Your word of challenge and comfort. And bring us home more deeply into your presence. That we will know that we are your beloved child. And that this is the place where we're truly home. Amen.